uh, joining us now to talk about a couple of columns recently. Diane, good morning. Welcome back. It's always good to, t- to hear your voice, and hopefully it's right about now. Yep, it sure is. Morning. <laughs> Welcome back. It's great to have you with us. Uh, You've written some great columns lately, and I want to talk about a few of them. Uh, Most recently, though, uh, I wanted to talk about the the whole China story, Diane. Your column was entitled, Trudeau's Inability to Stand Against China is a Stain on Canada. And your uh, subheader was, Canada's global reputation has been badly damaged by Trudeau's inappropriate kid glove treatment of China, and so is Canada's democracy, and that's the those are two dots I'd like to, to to connect. Our reputation, one can I can easily understand how our reputation has been damaged, but how in fact has our democracy been damaged by this strange, subservient relationship he seems to want to have with China? Well, um, I, I think that what was interesting to me was the. Um just a second here, I'm doing something, uh, was was the, uh, the fact that, well, it, it goes back to, to Michael's kidnapping mm-hmm. and, and all of that, where, you know, nothing has been done. Uh, the fact is that we have, um, you know, capitulated completely to China. China's broken contracts. It's abused us. It's bad-mouthed us. It's harassed some Canadian Chinese citizens who protest against what they're doing in Hong Kong. You've got the Uyghur uh, genocide going on. And, uh, you know, and then recently uh, the the scandal about the Wuhan lab, uh, Wuhan-Winnipeg lab connection in the COVID origin story. Um, Many of these things I've written up about before, but I want to point out to people there's a a terrific four-minute video that conservative leader Aaron O'Toole has done mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, litigates the, the Wuhan Winnipeg lab case in a way that's really, really important. And it ties in with the, with the democracy comment. Uh, basically, uh, you know, over this, questions have been raised. Obviously, dangerous pathogens were exchanged. The two Chinese scientists in Winnipeg were fired and no explanation given. And, right. you know, O'Toole points out that, uh, you know, Parliament has been shut down in terms of trying to get answers. Trudeau has, has uh, you know, obfuscated the, 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 the details and, uh, and shut out uh, the re- people's right to know. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, uh, this is where he has gone uh, into the area of um, affecting our democracy by okay. shutting down conversation in Parliament. Right. And so, okay, so there's the threat to the democracy. Parliament, uh, which is a court all of its own, uh, is now being sued by the government of Canada because uh, it does not want to share information regarding the activity, suspicious activity. The, The more they don't want to share it, Diane, the more suspicious it becomes. Even for those of us who don't really have a lot of clue as to what it's all about, the more the government dances and obfuscates and tries to to sweep it under the rug, the more suspicious we should all become. Can we take a moment, please, and talk about the details of the uh, of Mr. O'Toole's uh, video and the, the 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 facts that the Parliament of Canada is trying to find and being uh, held back by the government? So, what happened in Winnipeg? 
Well, you know, it's it's very well, as I say, litigated by O'Toole, who was, of course, both in the military and a corporate lawyer. Right. So he's he's well positioned to to uh, do this, and it's available on Twitter. I guess you could get it. It's social media. It's very well done. It's only four mm-hmm. minutes, but basically, what he's saying is, you know. It's not only just the public's right to know. Now, the government is arguing that this is a matter of national security. Of it's alarming uh, because, you know, this was pathogens and so on sent to a lab, which is now the culprit in causing COVID. We know that. More or less, we know that. It's certainly a question hanging over its head. Here's the, here's the, here's the rub uh, that O'Toole points out, and that is, okay, national security is all very well and good, but you haven't even told us who hired these people. Mm-hmm. Who, who let them hire people from the Chinese military to be in the military lab, who gave them permission to send pathogens, who didn't discipline, who didn't have oversight. In other words, you know, it was the government's enabling of whatever happened in Winnipeg, which we know wasn't good because they were fired and it's mm-hmm. all hushed up. Right. That should be certainly addressed by the government but they're hiding behind the fact well you know it's a national security issue well if it was a national security issue why in the world were they there in the first place and shouldn't have been allowed to stay for many years and do many things so you know they can't get out of that it's a cover-up there's no question by trudeau and you know there's so many other questions that are very strange why haven't we banned how, how, why, you know, Huawei, why haven't we um, set, heard anything about what happened to, to Carmen Ortiz, who is a, uh, the master spy in charge of all espionage and intelligence at the RCMP, who's still in jail after three years because he was likely a spy for China? We haven't mm-hmm. heard anything about that. Right. And so the Five Eyes, who are the other military intelligence uh, partners of ally, uh, allies of Canada are are looking askance at Canada, are very concerned. And, and I've got to believe that we have been denied the right to access and conversations with our military intelligence partners because of our bad behavior. Interesting. Now, do you think, uh, by the way, I need to take a break for the news, but just before we go, and, and please stick around because i got a whole lot more for you. But do you think, uh, Diane, we're so busy counting the money we've been promised that, of course, we don't have, uh, that we don't care about these uh, these international issues when it comes to who we vote for in the very soon upcoming election? Well, I, I we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I think it's very important. Uh, O'Connell is, is getting out, and he's, he's trying to be forceful. Now, also remember, one of the big problems to our democracy in Canada is that we have newspapers uh and we have a cbc that absolutely protects the liberal party that does not expose things that is not doing investigative journalism that is not doing accountability journalism and giving them a free pass on many of these topics and Mm -hmm. that is a concern because as we go to the polls we're going to turn to media for some information as to what what has been going on, and yes, people are busy. We've had COVID, a lot of you know difficulties for people. Mm. But you know, we have a responsibility to find out information. And you know what? Just Google, just Google my columns or Erno Tools video right. or the topic in general, the Wuhan laboratory in Winnipeg. 
that is something that people should see. Uh, Diane, we were talking about uh, before the news break about the video put out. Uh, you can Google it. Anyone can find it. It's a, a nifty little Google uh, video put out by Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the opposition. You know what? This is a part that boggles the mind. Aaron O'Toole, Diane, is younger than Justin Trudeau. And yet when you look at him and ask any typical Canadian voter uh, who is the younger of the two, uh, Mr. Trudeau wins the race uh, hands down every time. Uh, O'Toole has some image work, don't you think, needed? Well, uh, if you want to elect a teenager to prime minister, sure. <laughs> um, look, that's not look, what I meant, and you know it. Well, I think you know, Sterling. I think that's an ageist, ageism comment. Um, look, Mr. O'Toole doesn't get a fair shake on the CBC or in the Globe and Mail or the Toronto Star and many of the other major media because he's because he's not a, a liberal. Mm-hmm. Trudeau's all over the place constantly. Mm-hmm. He just all he has to do is grow a beard is, and he gets a spot on the CBC. So, you know, what you've got is you've got a prime minister who had no credentials going into the job. And now you have a man who's challenging him from the Tory party who was in the military as a helicopter uh, navigator for a mm-hmm. number of years. Then he became a corporate attorney, no small feat. And right. was on Bay Street with large clientele in courts and so on. This is a man of, of a lot with a lot of credentials and expertise and experience that is pertinent to a big job like running a country. Uh, right. So what we have is we have a, a youthful, shall we say, Mr. Trudeau, who's there because of his dad's name and got there because of his dad's name, who is running a cabinet that's full of amateurs who have no business experience to speak of and certainly not even domain experience in the in the portfolios they're in charge of we have a health minister who was a graphic artist we have a procurement minister who was a law minister i can go on and on the Mm -hmm. list is very depressing so you know what do you want do you want a guy that looks good on a magazine cover because Mm -hmm. he's he looks 20 years younger than his age or do you want someone who looks his age and acts his age and has experience to boot that, that's, to me, the decision. Uh, the other parties don't much matter because it'll boil down to Tories versus Liberals. Sure. And, you know, I think that uh, your comment's funny, but, you know, it is a problem. And it's not a problem, shouldn't be a problem for O'Toole, and I think Canadian voters are smarter than that. Uh, the problem, of course, is compounded by the fact that the prime minister has had absolute unfettered access to the public airwaves for well over a year uh, whenever he wants. And as long as he wants, no questions, please. One one question, one follow up. Next question. A very tightly controlled environment in which he is the star and which uh, in which no tough questions ever get asked. Uh, very difficult to compete on an exposure level, Diane, with that. And that's part of the problem with O'Toole. He doesn't have the recognition factor, no matter what his age or appearance. There are very few Canadians that uh, would would actually go up to him on a street, shake his hand and go, nice to meet you. They don't know even who he is, let alone what he stands for. And, And that's not necessarily his problem as much as it is his party's problem. And I think they've got a lot of work to do and they're going to have to spend a lot of money to play catch-up ball, don't you think? Well, yeah, and the other problem is they have to bypass the media, which which purposely keeps him out. And that, that, is, a, that is a threat to our democracy. 
the liberal tainted media in Canada. It's it's gotten worse as time has gone on. It's always been there, but it's gotten worse. So that's why his social media four minute clip, I hope, is one of many because he executes it very well. Mm-hmm. And he makes compelling arguments, he's articulate, and he's poised and dignified. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing they're going to have to do. And that's just, it's going to have to be that way. He's only been leader, I think, for, what, less than a year. Uh, right. The other the other problem, of course, is that, uh, you know, the Trudeau, Trudeau has made his little, little, you know, cameo appearances on CBC, uh, you know, as Mr. COVID fighter. But let, let's not forget, and I've run a series of columns about this, this gambit to dose delay. I mean, we are, we are, we are only now, uh, six months later, catching up to the Americans in terms mm-hmm. of shots given. And in terms, and, and during that duration, people who were vulnerable, people who had, had cancer, people with diabetes, those people were asked to, to, to wait four months for their second dose, which many studies in Europe, which I reproduced, showed was endangering. And so the lockdown lasted longer. That meant more trillions of dollars had to be spent on propping mm. up the economy. And that's all because he uh, Trudeau completely bungled the procurement of vaccines. Instead of coming out of the gate quickly uh, in January and Feb, when, when the United States was coming out of the gate to inoculate people, he had mishandled the procurement. We mm-hmm. were waiting and waiting and waiting. So that I don't, I, I would think that Canadians all know about that because it was the talk of the town and everybody was concerned about it. But the underlying cost of that to the economy and to the taxpayer is mind boggling. Diane, what do you think are going to be the primary election issues? Because the Liberals, given the opportunity, the federal government, given the opportunity to shape and identify the issues, it'll be very different from what certainly the opposition wants. And think, I think to a certain extent what some voters want. What do you think voters want versus what do you think we're going to get in terms of, of election offerings? Well, I'm told that Trudeau thinks he's going to be able to campaign successfully on how he uh, how he uh, behaved as a leader during the COVID crisis, despite mm-hmm. the procurement fiasco. He's actually going to uh, count on a user on the part of Canadians, who, by the way, have been propped up financially to a greater extent than other countries have been. So mm-hmm. he's bought votes, given pe- a lot of people a nice long rest without anxiety. And while, while he botched up the procurement, which endangered some of us, and he's going to claim that this was a magnificent success, and and therefore he should be reelected again. That's what I'm told that he's going to be uh, campaigning on. He certainly okay. can't campaign campaign on foreign policy. What about finances and the fact that in the last, uh, say, 18 months, the government of Canada has spent more money than the previous 153 and a half years? Well, it was an emergency, but the really important comparison, and he'll say it was an emergency. Of course, he made the emergency worse by delaying, by botching the procurement process. Uh, But that's number one. Number two is if you compare what he spent on, on, uh, you know, COVID relief uh, to other G7 countries, it's, it's disgraceful. He just went way over the top because that's what they do. This is a tax and spend party. That's all they've ever done, and that's their success. 
unfortunately. Well, so it's time to get grown-ups in there who know how to uh, who know who know how to control and discipline the government spending. Okay, uh, uh, and I, I'm not going to argue that point with you, but Diane, you and I have been around the block a couple of times on this one. Canadians have a, a long and fairly colorful history of voting for the party that promises them the most free stuff. Now, it's not perhaps the most uh, uh, credible voting history, but it's certainly identifiable. Are we going to continue that pattern this time? Well, uh, yes and no. I'm not sure I agree. I think Canadians are smart. Here's the problem. Voter turnout. Uh, Trudeau got a very small percentage of the popular vote, I think in the low 30s, in his last electoral victory. And, you know, benefited from the fact that the Liberals have gerrymandered the seats in Parliament so that they have 14 more seats in Quebec and the Maritimes than they should have. Um, But that aside, which is a big problem but would take years to deal with, uh, because it, it has to have parliamentary approval. He got something like 32, 30% of the popular vote. Considering that the popular vote was, the turnout was as low as it was, and my recollection is 65%, that means he got only 20-odd percent of Canadians voting for him. Right. And so, you know, that is an abrogation of responsibility. To me, every Canadian should get out and vote. Uh, and and notably, uh, you know, those over the age of 40 who pay the government's bills because they usually get it and vote Tory. So that's what has to happen. The turnout has to be higher on the part of those who are concerned about having, you know, a teenage prime minister who doesn't know what he's doing often running us again for another, you know, two or three, four years. And they've got to get out and vote. And, and that's the way it is. Uh, and, you know, if not, you know, it's a democracy and Canadians will get the government they deserve. Time to take a look at a new poll from Mario Canseco and research company here in Vancouver about professional sports, winners and losers in post-pandemic professional sports business. And, of course, we're now coming out of the pandemic. We're in phase three. There is a distinct possibility the Lions and Whitecaps will have fans at BC Place before the end of the Whitecap season and as the CFL season begins for the Lions, where are they in terms of public recognition? Mario Canseco is the grand fromage at Research Company, a frequent guest on this program and always welcome to join us. Mario, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. Well, it's good to have you back, my friend. Uh, The Canucks, let's talk about the three big-name franchises in Vancouver, and then we'll talk about some of the junior franchises and that new one coming to Abbotsford for this season, too. But we're talking, of course, about the major uh, franchises, the Canucks of the NHL, the CFL's BC Lions, and uh, Major League Soccer's Vancouver Whitecaps. What was the phrasing of the question, Mario? Tell us how, how you asked this question about fan recognition. Well, we wanted to take a look at how Canadian, at how BC residents felt about uh, the sports franchises that are playing professionally here. And we've been asking this question for the past couple of years, uh, essentially trying to figure out um, how they feel about it when it comes to the uh, way they follow it. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting here, uh, when we look at the numbers, is that we have seen a little bit of a drop when it comes to the level of interest from people. So we asked them over the course of the past five years, would you say you have become more interested, are just as interested, or have become less interested in each of these sports teams? 
And the reality here is that we have roughly about one in four British Colombians uh, who say that they have, have been paying uh, fewer attention to the five sports franchises that we tested. So um, definitely a little bit of a drop when you look at the numbers. Uh, but it's understandable because of the crazy uh, year and a half that we've had because of COVID-19. Exactly. I was just going to say, because uh, uh, recognition drops off when there isn't a lot to recognize around, right? And we've had, uh, no, at least we had Canucks games through a bizarre and, and rather dreadful season, but at least they had a season. Last summer, Mario, the CFL was non-existent, and the Whitecaps had a, a very compressed season, and so there wasn't a lot of opportunity for, for traction with either of those franchises locally, was there? Well, it's definitely more difficult to try to establish that emotional connection with the fans uh, when you're playing in a different country. I mean, that is sure. the case right now with the Whitecaps that are playing out of Utah, uh, to a lesser extent with the Canadians who are playing in Oregon, uh, and the CFL didn't even have a season. So there's definitely that difficulty to try to connect with sports because of the way uh, that things have been developing. What is really quite striking about the data is um, it's men who are more likely to say they are losing interest. And we were expecting a situation where, you know, maybe women, middle-aged Canadians were not going to be as keen on sports. Uh, but it's men who are essentially finding other ways uh, to keep busy and other things to be following, um, which is going to be crucial for when we actually return to sports. Are we going to be in a situation where, uh, in the same way uh, that many people have become used to working from home, are you going mm -hmm. to be now used to doing other things and not uh, buying tickets to the games or going to the bar or the pub to watch them? So definitely a challenge for the sports franchises in the foreseeable future. Interesting. By the way, when you were asking the survey and, and asking people, do you retain the same degree of interest you had in the team a few years ago? And if they say no, did you uh, have an opportunity to find out what they're seeking out as alternatives? You're saying, for example, men, primarily the sports fans, certainly that the sports marketeers go after. If men are turning away to a certain extent from pro sports, Mario, where are they going? Well, one of the things that they've been telling us uh, throughout the course of the pandemic is uh, that they've been following other sports. Uh, we see it a little bit, and also because of the timing. A lot of people who are starting to follow soccer from Europe, uh, right. soccer from South America, or people who have started to just do their own thing. You know, we saw an increase in uh, the number of people, uh, both men and women, who took up walking, who took up running, who started to do certain activities that maybe they weren't doing when the pandemic started uh, because right. they were going to the gym or doing different things. So it's a bit of a conundrum in the sense that there's definitely uh, a, a group that is looking forward to going back to the stadium and doing the same things they were doing again. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about how people would like to see a Major League Baseball franchise. So sure, there's yeah. definitely some interest uh, from British Colombians about how things are, are going to go. Um, but it's too early to tell, you know, partly because we don't even know what's going to happen. You know, there are plans for the stadiums to be back with full people, full capacity. Um, but it's, it's just too early right now to try to figure out what is going to be happening. And ultimately, also, people need to make some sacrifices. Uh, there's been an economic um, disruption when it comes to the pandemic. And maybe you're yes. no longer ready to dish out a couple of hundred dollars for a ticket and a couple of hot dogs.
Well, and you know, that's another big part of it as, uh, for example, we're going to talk a little bit about the, the drop off in, in, uh, popularity of the BC lions, for example, the franchise used to be a very, very big part of the local sports scene. Uh, I think uh, we talked to Julio Carabetta on the show about this yesterday, Mario, and I referenced the fact that you and I would have this conversation today when we were talking about it yesterday. Uh, I see this. For the Lions, who have had just dreadful marketing, they have lost the city. And part of it is nothing rhymes with orange and other equally absurd marketing schemes that just hit the did a face plant and did not resonate. Uh, they need to re-engage completely with the city. But here they are after a non-season, a year off, literally, and coming out of a pandemic, taking advantage, perhaps, Mario, of this well-identified pent-up demand with with skillful marketing and appropriate pricing. This is where I'm coming with the numbers. You were talking yeah. about a couple of hundred bucks for a hot dog and a, and a, and a seat. Uh, if, if they can come in with reasonable prices... Uh, and clever marketing, especially as Julio says, going after those younger fans, do you think they stand a chance of turning the franchise around? Well, I think it's definitely necessary to try to expand on the type of uh, attendant that you have for the BC Lions games. For a long time, it has been primarily marketed to people over 45. And what is happening is that you have a lot of younger people, especially children, uh, who are growing into sports, who are starting to pay attention to things, and they are more likely to be enthralled by the NFL. Uh, the NFL, you can watch it at home. Uh, sure. It's definitely a different situation. Uh, there's people who go to Seattle to watch the Seahawks, and that's fine as, uh, as, as, as well. Um, but I think the major problem with the CFL is uh, they haven't been able to compete for the new fans. Uh, mm -hmm. What you have is a bunch of legacy fans, people who maybe have been going to the games for 20, 30 years, Sure. They like it. They they definitely will come back because they're hardcore fans. Uh, but it's difficult to try to build a franchise in a world like this one, where you have the ability to watch anywhere, anything that you want, anywhere in the world. Um, how can you entice younger Canadians, younger British Columbians, uh, that the CFL is the place to be? And, and I think that is going to be one of the biggest challenges for the franchise. Even before we had COVID-19, we went through the situation of the BC Lions essentially saying we're not going to allow anybody in the upper bowl because we're not going to use it. So that's right. There's definitely a lot of stuff that they need to think about um, now because of the pandemic. It's a little bit easier, you know. Your 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 base, in a way, and and I would say this is one of the blessings of the situation that they're facing. Uh, your base has already been vaccinated. You know, you can mm -hmm. essentially allow them all to go there because most of them have been fully vaccinated by now. That's right. And and the good news is, as at least as it stands so far, what appears to be the directive from Dr. Henry and public health is that when they are, uh, their first home game will be on the 19th of August against the Edmonton Elks. Uh, and uh, that they're expecting 26,000 capacity in the lower bowl. If we're allowed 50% of the room, 13,000 people, they should have 13,000 people in that room for that opening game. And again, Mario, it's about pricing and, and making people, uh, making the uh, the idea attractive of going to a game and again they have pent up demand on their side i need to take a quick break uh, can i get you to stick around i want to talk about another poll that you've done about u.s popularity are you good for that or do you, or do you have to go oh gladly definitely I'll, I'll stay okay now i know you're also a sports fan so just before we take the break 
at noon Vancouver time. You were talking about you were talking about the big game. It's England, Italy from Wembley. Who are you cheering for today? I think Italy is going to win this. Uh, I see it as a much more uh, effective team when it comes to scoring. And uh, I think it's going to be very difficult, but I believe Italy will win 1-0. And Ciro Immobile, who has been mercilessly criticized, uh, will be the hero. I want to turn, though, to a poll that you just released the other day. Uh, and, and, and the first line is, for the first time in two years, half of Canadians hold a favorable opinion of the United States. So uh, this is a national survey that you've done in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so tell us about your findings, please, about the neighbors to the south. Well, we ask this question every six months uh, to try to make sense of how Canadians might feel about other countries. We have a list of 15 countries that we use. And usually you have a fluctuation of about a couple of points here or there. Uh, the numbers are usually very high for uh, the European G7 nations, France, Italy, United Kingdom, all at 73% mm-hmm. this, this uh, month. Um, but what's really striking is what's been happening with the United States. When we asked this question back in July of last year, we only had 32% of Canadians with a favorable view of the United States. Now, what is the moment that we're going through when we're asking that question? The middle of the electoral campaign, a lot of people in Canada who were dissatisfied with the fact that Donald Trump was the president, right. and also the fact that they weren't dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic as effectively as we were. So we go from 32% last year to 50% this year, and an 18-point increase, um, partly because COVID is no longer as rampant as it was a year ago, and there's also somebody else at the White House called Joe Biden. So interesting. So it is a combination. It's not just about Biden, Trump. It has it uh, the the management of the pandemic also has played into our opinion of the next door neighbors. It definitely has, because we were following uh, stories related to the United States, certainly more closely over the past couple of years uh, because of the election of Donald Trump and also because of the campaign. Um, we're no longer paying that much attention to things. But also the way in which we've been covering the COVID-19 pandemic is a little bit different. Now we start to see some differences in the United States, which can be definitely political. You know, you look at the vaccination rates in states that are um, managed by Republican governors, and they're definitely not as high as they are in places where the Democrats are calling the shots. So it's a combination of things. Um, But it's quite remarkable because we rarely see this type of situation where you start to grow so much from one year to the next. Um, you know, the, the numbers are fairly stable for the rest of the countries that we tested. Um, the, the one thing that really jumped out of the page for me was Quebec. You know, we had a situation in Quebec a year ago, even six months ago, where they weren't really uh, looking at the United States in a very positive light. And now right. they are more likely to do this and to feel this way than anybody else in the country. So there's something about Quebec. They're feeling about the United States, certainly in a very different fashion than they were a year ago. Interesting. So if Quebec is the province most favorably inclined these days towards the United States and our American neighbors, which province is the least favorably inclined? Well, the numbers are lowest here in British Columbia at 42%. Okay. Uh, also very close is Atlantic Canada at 43%. Um, This has been consistent in BC for the past uh, couple of years. You know, when I started asking about even the possibility of Donald Trump becoming the Republican candidate, the numbers for Donald Trump or for the idea of Donald Trump becoming president were always lowest in BC. So I think part of the problem that we see with the numbers here in British Columbia is 
um, we're really uh, starting to climb upwards because of Joe Biden from a very, very low number. You know, we essentially had a favorability rating for Donald Trump that was uh, closer to 15 or, or 16 percent. So you have those negative views and it takes a little bit of time for them to to start to change. But, you know, to go from those very low numbers to 42 percent certainly shows some momentum and maybe something to look forward to six months from now. Interesting. As you polled the these Canadians uh, from coast to coast on our favorability, uh, how disposed favorably disposed we are to these countries, was China on the list? And if so, what reaction did you receive? China has been one of the lowest ranked countries since we started asking. Uh, this time around, there's 21 percent of Canadians who have a favorable view of China. This is up from 19 percent six months ago. Um, definitely lower than the first time we asked, uh, when it was closer to the level that we see right now for Russia or for Venezuela, which is closer to 30%. Now it's uh, lingering at the bottom, uh, very near the numbers that we get for countries that have been uh, universally derided by Canadians, right. such as Iran or North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, what is changing this? You know, Part of it is, has been uh, the Mon Quanjo trial, um, the discussions about the uh, illegal detention of the two Canadians who are right now in China. Uh, people have been paying attention to this. And uh, there's really not been a, a major change, even though we've seen a lot of different statements coming out of the Chinese government related to this. Uh, even when, when we asked about the, the Beijing Winter Olympics just a few months ago, um, most Canadians thought it would be a good idea to boycott it uh, because of the human rights situation in China. So right. uh, we've seen the numbers shift for the United States. Um, definitely not the same situation when it comes to China. As they deserve. No kidding. Mario, thanks for this. Always a pleasure to to take a few moments, especially on the weekend when we have a few extra moments, to just take the pulse of British Columbia and catch up with ourselves. Thank you for the opportunity again today. My pleasure, Sterling. Anytime. Our next guest is always welcome on this program. She is the Seniors Advocate for British Columbia. A pleasure to say good morning again to Isabel McKenzie. Morning, Isabel. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Can you, did I have the, uh, the uh, articulate the changes in visitation rules sufficiently, or have, is there anything serious that I've left out in terms of those welcome changes? Well, what you were describing, Sterling, were the changes um, that were implemented at the beginning of um, April. So they've been in place for about three months. What is happening on the 19th of July is there's a further relaxation. And I think the, the biggest things that are happening when we come to July 19th, the single biggest thing is that you no longer need to schedule the visit in advance. And that's key because your your comments about the inconsistent application of the previous um, rules, ones that are in place now, which are actually mm-hmm. quite um, uh, quite liberal, if you will, um, was they were inconsistently applied. Right. And one of the, the ways that was happening was there was a requirement for you to schedule your visit in advance. So as long as you had to do that, you were told, you know, you can have an hour on Thursday and an hour on Sunday. Um, and so you weren't enjoying that kind of freedom that you had before. Now, with the requirement not to do that, families, it's going to be much, much more close to what life was like before COVID, when people would, 
you know, wander in um, when they when they wanted, stay as long as they wanted, go as frequently as they wanted. And as we know, many family members would go every day or several times a week and stay for several hours to uh, to help their their loved one, not just to Indeed, visit with yeah. them. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the changes that, and you're right, uh, especially when uh, I have a family in Ontario and we're constantly comparing notes, and, and you're right, uh, compared to many other jurisdictions across Canada, those uh, r- relaxed rules, uh, effective now for the last few months, are considerably more relaxed than many other jurisdictions. Uh, so uh, effective though, July 19th, which is only a matter of a few days away now, Isabel, uh, the the changes in, re- in regulations and visitation uh, rules, uh, these are coming as a result of uh, uh, consultation with the industry, with uh, patients, with patient representatives. What's the source of these changes? Well, I think that uh, one of the main drivers has been the success of vaccinations in um, both the number of people being vaccinated and also in the efficacy that we've seen the numbers go down dramatically uh, outbreaks are not happening to the degree they were. We still do sure. have some. Uh, it's rare, but we can have an occasional outbreak. The vaccine is highly effective, but it's not 100% effective. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that it's that's the main reason. Um, people who visit and uh, because we're now going to ask visitors to disclose whether or not they're fully vaccinated. And if they are, they no longer need to wear a mask except right. in the common areas. Um, They can still visit um, if they uh, don't have proof of vaccination. They just still need to wear the mask at all times if they do that. But so I think it's it's paralleling what we're seeing in the rest of B.C. where, you know, we're we're pretty close. We're not completely back uh, to life before COVID, but we're getting pretty close to it. And then, as you know, in for the rest of B.C., I think it's September 7th. Right. Yep. We're going to we're going to see another set of relaxations. Um, Masks, for example, will fall to personal choice versus being recommended and limits on um, some of the uh, commercial gatherings will be increased. And we're almost completely back to normal by that point. And the goal, I think, is to return to a world in which COVID becomes, um, you know, one of the infectious diseases in the soup of diseases we see in respiratory season. And that will be true in long-term care as well. We have to remember that in the year prior to COVID, we had, I think it was something like 178 outbreaks in our care homes with flu mm-hmm. or um, norovirus or, um, and they create a, a number of uh, infection control procedures kick into place when we have an outbreak. And there are some, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, fatal outcomes sometimes from some outbreaks, not always. Mm-hmm. And I think that will be the world we'll start to enter in the fall where, yes, we will still have COVID. Uh, there will still be some COVID outbreaks, potentially in long-term care, but we'll see much less serious illness and um, mortality from COVID, and it will become more like what we see from our seasonal flu. 
Indeed. And you mentioned September 7th, and that is an important date for a lot of people in British Columbia. I was uh, talking just before you and I began our conversation about uh, some concert announcements coming up for the fall, but it all hinges on September 7th for all of these organizers and promoters and everything. We have to be able to go through that portal successfully on September 7th uh, to create an even looser environment that's still aware, as you say, uh, again, we're, go- we're going to have to get to a point and September 7th, by then, particularly with our vaccination uptake, Isabel, uh, it's quite likely that by September 7th, uh, we will be at a point where we'll still be mindful, of course, of the pandemic. That will be impossible to ignore. But I think public confidence in terms of our management capability will be improved by then as well. Don't you? I do. And I think what is going to be... um, possibly a challenge for some of us because we've become very fixated on how many cases today, how many cases today, Mm -hmm. um, is to remember that if we, you know, go back to the very beginning, the goal of our management of this pandemic was to learn how to live with it uh, and reduce the morbidity and mortality, so sickness and death, and not to overwhelm our hospital or our healthcare system. So that is the expectation of where we will be in the fall. Yes, we will have cases, but they are going to be significantly less likely uh, to cause serious illness, Mm -hmm. significantly less likely to cause death, and we'll see far, far fewer hospitalizations as a result of uh, the, the number of people with COVID. Indeed, and that's already the metric that we're, I think, is perhaps generating the most positive energy, Isabel, because you're quite right. There is still, it's still in our midst, and we're still recording new cases, although at a very reduced rate. What we are seeing, however, is a fairly dramatic reduction in hospitalization, and I do believe that's evidence of the vaccine, don't you? Yes, it is a highly effective vaccine. It's not 100% effective. So, if you um, if you if it's ninety five percent effective, that means if a hundred percent or a hundred people are vaccinated, uh, five may experience uh, serious illness and and possibly even um, death if they were to uh, contract COVID. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about seniors' housing and the struggle that many British Columbia seniors are finding with housing these days uh, and housing affordability issues. What can you tell us about what your office can do to help BC seniors with housing issues? Well, I think uh, one of the first things is to make sure that people are connected to supports that are available for them uh, to assist with housing. So there's a couple of programs the province has. Uh, one of the easiest to access and use is the Shelter Aid for Elderly Renters, or SAFER program, which is a rent subsidy. It, the, based on your income and how much rent you're paying, the government will provide you with a monthly amount of money that will help you pay your rent. Okay. Now, it's a fairly straightforward program. There's no waiting list. Uh, the challenge, however, is that the rent, what we call the rent ceiling, the, the degree, the rent level will subsidize you to, uh, is fairly low relative to what the real rents are, right. particularly anybody who's renting somewhere new. Um, if you've lived in the same place for 25 or 30 years, your rent will be lower than if you just went to rent someplace in the last five years when our, as our rents have, have risen beyond, um, 
uh, inflationary rates over the last few years. So the Mm -hmm. SAFER program is important. The other program that's available is senior subsidized housing, which charges you a percentage of your income. So it's it's ultimately um, they're affordable because you're always going to have um, a percentage of your income left over. We charge in general terms, 30% of your income is charged towards rent. But uh, there's a long waiting list because it's in specific buildings, usually uh-huh. run by a nonprofit society, sometimes run directly by BC Housing. But there's quite a long waiting list. I think it's uh, now you're going to be waiting certainly at least a year and a half for that accommodation. Mm-hmm. Then, if you need some supports, so actual assisted living, there is subsidized assisted living available through the health authority, but the challenge there is there's very little of it. Um, and it's one of the areas where I think we need to be offering more subsidized assisted living than, than we are. There's no doubt, Sterling, that uh, seniors are very challenged, those who rent, in the housing market. Now, only about 20% of seniors are renters. However, those who are renters are disproportionately poorer. The The average household income of uh, a person who rents in British Columbia who's a senior is about nineteen dollars or $20,000 a year. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, they've likely been renters all their life. Right. And if they find themselves having to move for whatever reason, it is very catastrophic for seniors. They're likely to face an extraordinary rent increase. Indeed. They don't have the same mobility that a younger person might have. They're much less likely to drive. It's much more important for them to be in a neighborhood with connections where they know people as they age. Um, And so that is a group of people I worry about quite a bit. Seniors who find themselves having to move. One of the reasons will be uh, landlords making changes to the building. Sometimes True, yep. they, these changes have to be made and tenants have to move. Uh, sometimes um, it's less clear that the tenants have to move or that the changes have to be made. And those are what we are certainly trying to uh, uh, reduce as much as possible. Interesting. Now, you talked about some uh, supplementary assistance available for renters. Uh, and we know, for example, that coming up in August, uh, citizen, Canadian citizens of a- age 75 or over are going to receive a one-time $500 payment from the Government of Canada. Uh, what other support mechanisms a little closer to home are there here in BC uh, for, in terms of income uh, for seniors who are strapped? You're talking about a person trying to live on 19 grand a year. My God. Gosh, Isabel, in the most expensive city in Canada, that's trying to climb Mount Everest with no shoes on. It's crazy. So are there other supplements available to people in dire straits? Not that many, Sterling. So when we look at income, uh, mostly it's the federal government that provides it through the old age security, the OAS, and the GIS, the Guaranteed Income Supplement. BC offers something called a Seniors Supplement as an additional payment for the lowest income seniors. And the government recently doubled that amount uh, in this last budget. So it's about $100 additional each month. 
and it used to only be fifty dollars. Now that doesn't that may not sound like a lot to you or I, but when you are on uh, $19,000 a year, yeah. um, an extra matters. $50 a month matters a lot. Yeah. So it, it is absolutely a challenge. To, to put it in perspective, about a, just under a third of BC seniors receive the guaranteed income supplement. That means that their incomes are below about $25,000 a year. So that's mm-hmm. about 250,000 BC seniors. There's another group uh, who receive the senior supplement, and they're the lowest income seniors in the province. There's about 65,000 seniors receiving the senior supplement. So, you know, it now that's out of... 5 million British Columbians, sure, so it right. doesn't seem like a lot proportionately. But that is, uh, that is a significant number. And when you look at many of the challenges we face as we age, some of them are things we, have, we used to be able to do for ourselves, we can't do any longer, and we have to hire people to help us. Now, the, the programs that are available, so First of all, if you're on the guaranteed income supplement, you don't pay anything for your home support. You, you do if you aren't on the GIS. So okay. that's, a, that's helpful for low-income seniors. There's a program called Better Very at quickly, Home. Quickly, if you can, Isabel, please. Uh, Better at Home, which can offer support for housekeeping or um, if you need groceries delivered. And if people need that, I would encourage them to call 211 and get connected to their local Better at Home program. So there's a few programs available as well, but there's no doubt our low-income seniors do struggle. Our guest is Stephen Jones, who is the Flair Airlines President and Chief Executive Officer, joining us from here in Vancouver with some good news for travelers heading to U.S. destinations who don't want to go to Bellingham to go there. Stephen Jones, good morning, and thanks for joining us. Good morning, and a beautiful morning here in Vancouver. It absolutely is. Now, Flair Airlines is Canada's ultra-low-cost discount carrier, and you've uh, made, announced a few, four new U.S. destinations reachable from YVR here in Vancouver. Tell us more, please. Yes, that's right. Uh, so, Flair, as you said, is Canada's only true independent ultra-low-cost carrier, and we currently fly to 20 destinations around uh, Canada. So, from coast to coast, uh, Flair is covering you with affordable fares, and we were thrilled to announce the expansion. Uh, so we'd be flying not only domestic Canada, but also flying from eight cities in Canada down to six cities in uh, the United States for a total of 21 new routes. And uh, as I understand it, four new routes from Vancouver will serve Burbank, the greater Los Angeles market, Palm Springs, Mesa, which is basically Phoenix, and Las Vegas, correct? Absolutely right. And we're also servicing Las Vegas from Abbotsford from the, um, uh, when we start flying there. So now let's talk about prices, Stephen, because this is not only is it going to be cool to just go to Vancouver or Abbotsford to jump on a, a plane to blast down to Vegas or one of these other destinations. The other half of the equation is how little one can expect to pay. Tell us more again, please. Absolutely. At Flair, we believe that Canadians have just been paying too much for too long for airfares. It's ridiculous, the prices people pay. So uh, we'll be having everyday low fares. Our fares start uh, from between $79 and $109 on those destinations. 
And while those are promotional fares, we'll be keeping our fares low all day, every day. That's the heart of our business model is keep it simple, keep it efficient, and pass that on to people in terms of low fares. Perfectly understandable and very desirable from a traveling consumer. And you're talking to a guy who loves to travel, Stephen. But I guess the the other question that is begged because of that is, how are you going to manage to pull it off? Because, uh, uh, yes, there's pent-up demand that you're counting on heavily, I can imagine. And there's plenty of it to count on. But, my gosh, making the math happen uh, at an ultra-competitive time, pretty challenging stuff. It is challenging, but it's also very simple. You know, the the low-cost model is a very simple model. The difficulty people have is is sticking to it. Um, But we've got ultra-efficient, brand-new aircraft, and so it's like having a new car, you know, very efficient, low on gas, um, doesn't need to go into the shop much in the first five years other than um, what's scheduled. And so we just keep with low, low, um, brand-new aircraft, we keep our costs low, um, and just offer people what they want, none of the stuff that they don't. So it's, um, it's actually not that hard. It happens everywhere else in the world. If you go to the United States, as you said, to Bellingham, uh, we go to Europe, go to Asia, everyone's got this model except for Canada. So it's time that Canadians benefited from truly affordable fares. So would this be comparable to what uh, European travelers would, would think of as Ryanair, that kind of low-cost carrier then, Stephen? Yes, absolutely. Or Wizz Air is, is another one there. And, and, you know, these are the most successful airlines in the world because right. they keep their costs low um, and uh, allow prices to, to follow and, and then demand everyone wants a piece of it. I suppose the question that a lot of other Canadians are asking is, how did you find a place in the marketplace? As I understand it, the Canadian airspace and air travel industry is pretty tightly regulated for carriers of uh, from any other country to finally get a deal where they can land in Canada is, is a major diplomatic score, for crying out loud. Canada is very protectionist about its aerospace and industry. How did you manage to find a spot, elbow your way, into 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 your current position well firstly flair is a canadian airline so um, in terms of the regulations uh any canadians are, are able to start up an airline and so um flair flair is very much a canadian airline so that side of it um really wasn't difficult and then it's about having the um i guess the ambition and the the energy to bring this to market at a time when uh when we're in a pandemic now I actually think the timing is very good because we've got uh, brand new new aircraft available at short notice. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty of pilots available who are willing and keen to come and work for us with years and years of experience on other airlines. Uh, the airports are very accommodating and, and wanting to have us there. And, um, of course, the, the competitors are still also dealing with, um, with the pandemic themselves. And so it's actually, uh, ironically, a perfect time to come to the market. Interesting, because, of course, uh, the larger your your fleet and your corporate uh, presence is, the more expensive it is to stay in the game, correct? Well, not really. It's actually you, you get economies of scale. And so, yes, in absolute terms, obviously, the more aircraft you've got, the more you know, jet fuel you need to buy and the more um, pilots and cabin crew you need to hire. But you've also got more seats to pay for it. And so yes. the, the bigger you get, you get economies of scale. And so you're not adding a lot of extra overheads. You don't need another CEO for every aircraft we bring in, but we do need mm. more pilots. 
Um, so economies of scale actually help us drive our prices down, which um, makes the, the whole formula work better. You've, you've talked a couple of times, you mentioned pilots and staffing issues. You know, we've ha- had a lot of conversations, Stephen, with people in the hospitality sector, and they're experiencing serious, real staffing problems, shortages, people just not available. How about in the airline industry, which has been sidelined for so many workers for so long? Are there people who have moved on or are there lots of people ready to get back at it? There's absolutely a lot of people ready to get back at it. When I think about the pilot hiring um, of all of our new pilots coming in, probably half of them are Canadians who were previously working in the industry here in Canada and had mm-hmm. lost their jobs or, or chose to come and work with us. The other half are pilots that have been working for airlines overseas, you know, such as some of the uh, the Gulf states, the um, and they've lost their jobs there, and so they're not flying at the moment. Um, right. Many of them, are, you know, come to us with 20, 25 years of experience on um, on big passenger jets, and so fabulously qualified pilots um, willing to come in and, and be part of our, our vision. So recruitment issues simply aren't a problem with Flair Air. Look, I think the whole market is definitely tightening, um, you know, so cabin crew or um, our, our office staff, um, we can feel it, but um, when it comes to pilots, there's fantastic pilots available, and we're very glad they've chosen to come and join us. Indeed. Where's uh, Flair Airlines' uh, corporate headquarters, Stephen? The corporate headquarters is in Edmonton, um, and uh, we have aircraft based in five different bases. So we have aircraft based in Toronto Pearson, in Kitchener-Waterloo, in Ottawa, uh, in Vancouver, and um, from the 1st of August in Abbotsford. Interesting stuff. Well, we certainly wish you considerable success uh, ferrying British Columbians for inexpensive rates to fun destinations once we get all clear to to get the heck out of town, Stephen. Thank you very much for doing this this morning. We appreciate it. And as I say, good luck with this uh, venture. My pleasure. The name of the game is Low Fares, and so come to Flair for those Low Fares, and we'll fly you around. Prime Minister Trudeau and a cast of hundreds, at least, uh, there in front of Surrey City Hall made the big announcement on Friday. The federal government will provide up to $1.3 billion for the Surrey to Langley Skytrain extension. That includes an elevated extension of 16 kilometers and eight more Skytrain stations. Our next guest says that's a very welcome funding, but, you know, Surrey is going to be the largest city in B.C. in less than 10 years and needs a lot more attention from all levels of government. A pleasure to welcome back Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, who made those remarks in the Vancouver Sun just a day or so ago. Anita, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Well, it is a fact, mathematically, if nothing else, that Surrey will be British Columbia's biggest city in less than 10 years. How big, how much bigger in in 2030 do you expect Surrey to be than Vancouver? Well, we're growing right now by 1,200 to 1,400 people a month. And so we are expected to surpass Vancouver's population by 2030. And uh, and certainly the other thing to consider is you can fit the cities of Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby into the city limits of Surrey. That is how big our geography is and how underserved and starved we have been for transportation investments. 
Interesting. You know, the uh, conservatives were very quick to point out that uh, this is all very well and good, Prime Minister, but this stuff was promised a long time ago and not a lot has happened since that original promise. Essentially, it's a re-announcement of, of intentions more than anything else. Or did you read it differently? Well, certainly we were expecting something. Uh, You know, we met with uh, Finance Minister uh, Christopher Freeland before the federal budget dropped. And, uh, you know, she was looking for shovel-ready projects that contributed to uh, positive climate change results. And and certainly, you know, the SkyTrain piece is good. But it doesn't keep people in Surrey. It doesn't connect people within Surrey. And uh, as I mentioned, and as you mentioned at the top of the call, that, uh, you know, it's welcome. SkyTrain is great, but it doesn't connect all of Surrey, and we need more. So what sort of, uh, because it's all about infrastructure spending, that's going to be a thrust, I think probably a serious plank in the the federal liberals election, re-election platform, Anita. They're going to talk about major investments. Of course, it's all borrowed, but nonetheless, major investments in infrastructure. Surrey would certainly be a candidate for some of those dollars. Where would you like to see some of those spent in Surrey to benefit the long-term growth that you anticipate? Well, I think uh, we have to take a look at a variety of ingredients in the overall transportation recipe. And it's not only relying on government uh, for that. I mean, we are going to have to take a look at innovative solutions, private sector investment. Uh, Buses are not the only solution. We need to take a look at dedicated bus pullouts to decrease congestion. Uh, And yes, you know, we're moving to electric vehicles, but that's Mm -hmm. still more cars on the road. We need to take a look at the commuter, uh, existing commuter rail lines that are in Surrey and can extend all the way to Abbotsford and take a look at how that can move people uh, in this in Surrey and the South Fraser economic region. And uh, and certainly, you know, we need to take a look at uh, other innovative measures uh, to get people out of their cars, uh, to have easily accessible transit, because that is not the case right now mm-hmm. for most of Surrey. And, and the other thing I wanted to say is this SkyTrain will only serve a fraction of Surrey's population. It's not even going to be built in a densely populated area of Surrey. It's mm-hmm. not going to serve Guilford, Newton, Cloverdale, South Surrey, where most people live, learn, work, and play. Indeed. Now, there was, to, as, as and I can remember, I've been around the, of the block a few times here, Anita, and I can remember in the in Surrey when there were conversations about, well, do we go SkyTrain or do we look at possibly other surface rail alternatives, some kind of, like they have the C-Train the system in Calgary or streetcars like Toronto. Other options were considered, but eventually scrapped in favor of SkyTrain, uh, which was, of course, uh, the, the, the sexy uh, alternative that was selected by most of the the mayor's council and so on. My question to you is, though, do you still think there is a case to be made for other surface rail alternatives? You mentioned rail systems in a place right now between Surrey and Abbotsford. Uh, Is there a case to be made for reigniting or uh, repurposing some of that? We need to. Because we can't wait another 20 or 30 years for another government announcement like this. Right. And we're still going to be waiting for a SkyTrain for some time. 
And you see in other cities over the world, you see elevated transportation infrastructure complemented by light rail or other surface rail uh, infrastructure to mm-hmm. move people. Both can happen. Yes. And, and certainly, um, you know, people are used to SkyTrain. You know, that's the culture of uh, British Columbia and Canada. But light rail is sexy. It is high tech. It isn't old school. And, uh, and it can be built in a way that doesn't impede with traffic of, of, uh, of vehicles and, and to ensure that everyone is safe on the roads, including those that are cyclists, those that are walking, and, and other modes of transportation that will and are going to continue uh, into our future. And I would think also, Anita, from a cost perspective, if you're repurposing existing infrastructure, it would be a heck of a lot cheaper than building brand new, uh, previously non-existent infrastructure. So it could be done more quickly and far more affordably, don't you think? You bet. And, uh, you know, before the pandemic began, the B.C. government had promised a South Fraser transportation planning table. Uh, so that was industry, stakeholders, business, et cetera, to take a look at these types of innovative solutions, existing rail lines uh, that could be used uh, right. successfully and, and were used even in the past. And uh, But that hasn't happened. And uh, we've been calling for that table to be convened, but no word yet from the province. Interesting. And that, of course, is a provincial issue. And Surrey has come to be a big provincial deal for the current government as they enjoy quite a number of seats out of Surrey. So I would think that as a priority to retaining those seats and goodwill that goes with them, that that kind of group would have been formed rather quickly. Are you surprised it hasn't been? I'm not really surprised. I mean, we have said that, uh, you know, to all parties that Surrey matters. And Surrey needs to be paid attention to. It's not only about Vancouver anymore. And so uh, when we have another 1.5 million people moving into Metro Vancouver by 2050, many of them will be living in Surrey and in the South Fraser region. The uh, province of BC and the federal government, I know that Surrey matters to them, but Surrey needs to matter more to them. And it is a pleasure to welcome Stuart Durden to the program. Stuart and I have been trying to connect on the radio for a couple of weeks, and it's a pleasure to welcome aboard today because we've got some good news to pass along. Stuart, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Good morning, and yes, we do have some good news all oh, across boy. the country. In fact. No yeah. kidding. Yeah, I just I just went over to Live Nation's Twitter feed just to just to kind of get myself tuned up for the speed that this this, this conversation is going to take. Because after what is it now? Fifteen, maybe sixteen months, Stuart, of uh, verboten uh, performance. Uh, suddenly, we have Phase Three in British Columbia and Ontario. Uh, phase Four happens September seventh, and that is the magic date for concert organizers and promoters and tour people because once we hit phase four all things being equal uh, then we're in a position to have concerts and and those sorts of activities so uh, and I know here on uh, CKNW we were giving away Elton John tickets Stuart last couple of weeks but that tour the farewell yellow brick road tour is next fall as in October 22 safely tucked away and and programmed into coming back which is great but between now and then there's that's that's well over a year and there are people just dying to get on stage aren't there 
There are, Sterling. And, and of course, the thing to consider, I mean, I, I personally just attended three shows at the Jazz Fest uh, that just uh, wrapped up last week. And you don't know what you missed till it's gone. Uh, yeah. it, was really, it was really something to just be able to sit in a room, um, you know, social distancing and limited numbers were in place, but still just right. be able to sit in a room and see a live performance and hear it and experience it was really something uh it, it you don't it, i didn't really realize how much i'd missed it um such as someone who's such a concert goer as i am it really resonated i was going over uh an old you know when all of this pandemic first hit we were all talking about the impact of live music there were lots of stories we were constantly going through it on the news cycle sure. and i did an interview about sort of the future of live music or, or what what we can expect coming forward and i've had a very prescient quote from uh you know emeritus uh artist manager Sam Feldman, where, you know, he commented that possibly one of the biggest challenges coming into, and, and at that point they were already talking 2022, mm-hmm. and you can see it on your calendar if you're putting down the dates. How are we going to find the crews and the equipment and everything else necessary to have all these shows that are being announced? I mean, it is a, it's, it's a sort of a slow startup in, you know, October, November, we're seeing a lot of shows, case in point, Mother Mother's Four Nights at the Commodore, um, right. among others. But then once you get into 2022, it's like there used to be the dead zone until sort of, you know, March. Not anymore. It's it's right. it's going to be just constant shows. And, and I'm, I'm seriously wondering how people are going to be able to the, the demand is there. But are people going to have the cash or the time to be able to see all these things? And to say nothing of, of the tour companies that are the touring uh, bands themselves, those those tours take massive logistical organizing, Stuart. Absolutely. And there is a finite number of, of companies who are set up to do major international music tours with all of those fleets of uh, semi-trailers and all the rest That's of it. Right. Uh, there, There's not an indefinite supply. So there's going to be a bit of a demand uh, crunch come uh, tour there's, season. There's, there's going to be a huge demand crunch and they're already sort of technically is in some ways for things like i you try to imagine you know it's like transfers well into the early evening or you know the the, the morning and somewhere in north dakota you know there's one tour is just winding up and the other tour is just coming through and they need to get the lighting rig from the one tour that's coming by so they can look you know those semis can be loaded onto a different group and keep rolling you know it's uh, it's, it's interesting um of course one sad thing in reality we have to face is there will be many fewer venues across this country for those shows to take place in because we have seen wide industry closures when people just couldn't keep the places going. And fortunately, right. Vancouver, we've, we've been pretty lucky here in, in that, you know, venerable venues such as the rickshaw and, you know, uh, various, the, the Biltmore and the Commodore have, have been able to survive, but uh, it wasn't looking too pretty a while back there. It wasn't indeed. And it's interesting you would mention the Commodore, which is perhaps my favorite Vancouver venue. I've been to so many epic shows there over the year. And, and, and as I'm going through the Live Nation Twitter feed, I see five alarm funk at the Commodore, October 2nd. I think we're going to be there, Stuart. Oh, I think so. I, you know, it's funny you should mention that because that was the one I had up right up here on my, my screen as well, because there's something about that particular band playing the Commodore. Uh, you know, historically, them along with the Funk Hunters have been sort of the, the Christmas period of the funky shows that people can just go and really cut loose at. And right. I think that October, that show is going to be epic. Indeed it is. Great. I love horn bands too. So um, it's, it's right up my corner. So let's start. What, what is the first date here in Vancouver this fall? And again, it's all, uh, it's all post September 7th, which is officially at least cross your fingers, the opening date for phase four. So uh, given that, what's the first date that you have that's uh, locked in for a Vancouver show? 
well, we can go even, you know, weirdly we can go before that because there are shows getting locked in, in, you know, in, in August, uh, you know, MRG has announced some fabulous uh, here at the Imperial and the, I know the Hollywood, some of the smaller clubs, uh, you know, are definitely coming, but, uh, I would say some of the big ones, you know, I, <laughs> if you're a country fan, I think, you know, seeing legendary Tanya Tucker at the Vogue theater on October 10th is a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would say that uh, Live Nation, of course, is really kicking into high gear with a lot of things. The um, Just calling up the rickshaw here to take a peek at what's uh, coming up there, because that's one of, for all its grittiness and everything in the neighborhood, it's such a great well, and, that's, and you're right, because there's, there's a distinction to be drawn between acts that will be available at no- local nightclubs, Stuart, versus yes. performance acts at concert venues like the Commodore or the Queenie. And we will see uh, music in local clubs well before September 2nd. In fact, have you been to a club or a bar uh, in the last couple of weeks in which there's been at least uh, somebody playing a guitar or something in a corner, some live music already going on in some of those clubs beyond the jazz festival which you did see uh there have been stuff i'm just around my neighborhood because i live downtown there's definitely been a return to you know the bands in the corner i mean even back to the something as innocent as the farmer's market you know it's like Mm -hmm. those haven't even had any live music and now the you know buskers are back strumming away there as well so that's that's kind of exciting um I mean, I guess the first, perhaps one of the first big events to come in, in September really is the, uh, the you know, MRG Westward Music Festival. Uh, MRG is a company that, you know, operates the Vogue, the Imperial, and the Biltmore. Um, okay. But that's uh, Saturday, September 11th. Uh, they've got uh, a night at the rickshaw. They've got nights at other venues around town. And this is sort of a celebration of, you know, their various local musicians plus touring musicians. And uh, I'd say that's a big deal. I mean, Chad Van Galen, who's going to be playing there at the uh, rickshaw on September 11th as part of this festival, always a big draw in Vancouver typically sells out whenever he comes and, and local uh, indie rockers, golden youth who are, uh, it features Louise Burns and some other people of, of note. Um, they've got a new album coming out and they're going to be playing opening that show. Uh, rockabilly fans won't want to miss cousin Harley. Always a huge draw as well. He's okay. Um, they're dropping their new album on September 25th at, at the rickshaw as well. And then, uh, you know, moving on, I, I, the, the big question for me is, are we going to see, it's a little too tight a turnaround for, anybody to be able to do something like, you know, big outstage festival type stuff like the folk festival or something, because you just get the logistics of turning it around is impossible sure, exactly. to do in a matter of weeks. But, yeah. you know, I, I am seeing, I, I suspect it's sort of a slow flow right now leading up to the new year, uh, but shows are being announced literally daily um, and, the, and the calendar keeps getting more full. But as I say, once you step into the new year, it's constant. Absolutely. We're talking about some of the big shows coming to Vancouver. Live music is coming back. And I'm Stuart, I'm looking at uh, the Ticketmaster website right now at some of the names. Now, this is for basically a year from now uh, with the legendary Downchild Blues Band coming back from Toronto. Tame Impala, Harry Styles, Celine Dion, Dave Matthews, John Legend. Uh, Some of the big names are definitely planning tours. And as we were talking about earlier, this could prove a logistical challenge for them and their management because everybody's going to want to go out at the same time. But just before we get to what's happening locally in Vancouver, you mentioned a couple of times already, so-and-so is playing the Biltmore, so-and-so are playing the Rickshaw, and they're, they've got a new album, and they're touring their new album. I'll bet you, during the last, uh, what, 15 months or so of this pandemic, when they couldn't perform live, a lot of musicians, in fact, probably the great majority of them, have been in the studio creating new projects. 
I was, I, you know, I've got a story running um, next week. Uh, the Bare Naked Ladies had their first new record coming out in four years. And okay. uh, one of the things that we were talking about and that I've talked to a lot of musicians about, it, it has really impressed me over the course of this pandemic with people not being able to play, not being able to sort of be in that usual traditional cycle of record, release, tour, and support. Right. A lot of people have been putting out really great records. I mean, not just good, but some of them have been like career highs. Uh, and I like to call it the pandemic pause effect um that has just meant that a lot of these people where they might have put the album out and said that's good to go suddenly they're able to go down that rabbit hole of i want an extra six months to work on this or to do this and guess what i have no choice but to have that extra six months um that's right and 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 they're doing it and i, I think the exciting thing there is a you're going to have a lot of albums that are going to sound profoundly different live than they sound in studio which is something i've always liked um mm -hmm. And the other thing is, it's just, I think these artists are really going out ready to go. They're raring to go, but they're raring to play this new material. They're raring to rework old material. They were just, that it's put a lot of musicians in a different mindset than the sort of nine to five, gotta do it grind that they might've been into before. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, some of the older names in the business who are planning uh, uh, comebacks or, or just planning to stay in and continue performing, again, it's not that they're trying to, to create competition uh, for time on stage or in the silver spotlight. It's just that's what they do. They've been doing it forever, right. and not doing it for 15 months has been as painful for the old guys as the newbies, hasn't it? Well, of course, of course. You know, if you don't exercise, you get stiff, you know? It's that's right. The, the, the reality of the situation and uh, you know and sad to say a lot of these artists are hitting a point where maybe they don't want to go out uh, very often anymore you know and I, I can certainly appreciate that if i was in my mid-70s as so many of the classic rock generation are no kidding going out on a going out on a big tour you know for months and months you're not going to do the the legendary you know tours of old where you know what was it led i was just reading an article about led zeppelin where they said they toured the u.s five times between the first and the second album and mm -hmm. It's, you know, logistically, that's insane. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's going to be fun. Um, I, I, it's, it's hard for me because uh, it does sort of make you remember your age. But when albums that were, like, hitting in high school and, like, or grad year are now, like, you know, it's sort of coming up and it's 25th anniversary. But then there's other people going on. It's like, it's the 50th anniversary tour of this classic album. Um, that's exciting. I mean, it's, it's always fun to see that happening, you know, and, and I think that that's going to make for some really great shows. I mean, and I believe we're, we're seeing some pretty legitimate goodbye tours this time around. I mean, I think, you know, Kiss is claiming it's the end of the road. Elton John, of course, is going out on what he claims is his final tour. Uh, you know, I right. think Cher is still touring her goodbye tour somewhere in the world and uh, maybe uh -huh. that will come to an end at some point. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, this is interesting. And, and new artists coming up that can fill those arena spaces. Um, now's the time to come out and prove that you've got what it takes, too. The only band that I haven't heard from in terms of doing yet another farewell tour, Stuart, is The Who. Because <laughs> I think I've seen four or five farewell tours from those guys. Maybe yeah, they're have, done. Maybe they're done. Who knows? Uh, let's talk I, about some of the big shows coming to town this fall. Because now we're, you know, we're talking Harry Styles and Celine Dion. That's all next a year, literally a year away. How about stuff coming to town soon? Okay, big shows. Uh, weirdly, you know, there haven't been that many big shows announced uh, up to the new year. Um, but what we have seen and what I'm excited about is new venues that are doing some pretty big shows. I mean, we have two things to look forward to coming up. One is the Hollywood Theater, which really didn't get a chance to showcase all the 
all the money and all the effort they put into designing that space to be a live music venue right in the heart of Kitsilano, which hasn't had a good live music venue for ages. Um, True. You know, I've been dating back to the days when Rohan's and the soft rock quit. That's right. Get, I remember you know, Rohan's, you bet. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we've got, I'd say one of the big kickoff shows, certainly at the Hollywood Theater's perennial favorites, uh, be it at, you know, Squamish Music Festival or, you know, selling out the Commodore or what have you, but Yukon Blonde is coming um, on mm-hmm. October the 23rd. Killer band, great last album, great album before that. I mean, they're just, they're really in their element. They're putting out great music in there and they're really, really a good live band. Um, I'm excited about that to see how they can stretch out in the new room. Um, and then, of course, you know, there was a recent announcement that the PE is going to become probably an all year round um, venue as well with some modifications. And that's exciting because that's a it great is. space that holds a lot of people and, uh, and we need them. You know, we, we, we need a couple more mid sized spaces that can. You know, that aren't Rogers or uh, BC Place, because only a certain kind of artist can come in there. Um, so that that's exciting to, to see that. Uh, yeah, that new venue at the PNE is going to be a flexible space. It'll be covered, as was the old Plaza of Nations space down at the Expo Land. So it'll be, it. it can hold up to 9,500 people and a smaller crowd, I guess, is 2,500. But mm-hmm. it'll be covered, and it's going to be a great additional extra venue for, for a lot of fun outdoor, but still not in the rain shows, Stuart. Yeah, and, and the beauty of that, too, is it's a great all-ages venue. And, and we need that all-ages venue that can hold between a thousand to five thousand, which is a you know like for, for those tours that come through and stuff like that, they're just you know they've been the forum, the gardens, but there were it's noise complaints and issues just with the age of the rooms and stuff like that. It's, it's fantastic to have that coming on board, and mm-hmm. it's such a great, and- easy destination location for people to get to as well. Indeed. Well, it's it's an exciting time. You're a, you're a lucky guy because you went to the jazz festival. We had them on uh, on the show a couple of weeks ago, urging people like you to come on out. We're going to have live music, and I'll bet you it was pretty packed, given the limitations of seating. Uh, but, and, and everyone there was probably as ecstatic as you were to actually be in a place where you could hear and enjoy live music again. Indeed, that was so. But you know what? What I really was missing, and I think everybody would agree, is. We didn't get those two, those bookended free weekends, one at the Art Gallery and also David Lamb Park. And not just for the Jazz Festival, but, you know, I mean, coming up, I guess, the, I guess actually come to think of it, I think the, the Carnival del Sol, our big Latin American uh, community festival is coming in August. And they usually do a pretty bang up job with their outdoor stage, whether, they, whether they're going to be able to do it the way they want to, because it's before that September date that you mentioned. I don't know, but it's still, that's, it's that you know the summer season is tight it's short and we love those outdoor events we certainly do hi it's shauna and i might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables hey it's ryan and i might be a bad parent because i went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth johnny here i might be a bad parent because in my house the tooth fairy gives pocket change but we're not alone len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital and andy left his two-year-old at the rink all right guys i'm sure we're not alone like andy's kid For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.